Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. I'm sure you know by now that the door you have just entered leads to a strange world, a land of forbidden fancies, peopled by giants and pygmies, kings and cobblers, saints and sinners. Happy children play in its streets while just behind lurk iniquitous monsters. Unspeakable crimes are committed here and acts of breathtaking valor. You are the sovereign in this place. It is the realm of your own imagination. Our story this time searches one of its deep recesses, the hidden place of fear. Our mystery drama, Death Will Not Silence Me, was especially written for the Mystery Theater by Arnold Moss. It stars Marion Seldes and John Beale. I'll be back in a moment with Act One. In ancient times, disease was often attributed to the supernatural, the spiritual, or at times, it was thought to be the result of what was called humors. In more recent years, we have learned that some ailments may arise from hereditary abnormalities, disorders passed on from one generation to the next. The year is 1839, in the heart of the bluegrass region of Kentucky. The city of Lexington, a young lady from one of the city's leading families, 21 years old, watches terrified as the rain beats in savage fury against the glass of the window pane. Stop me! Stop thunder! Stop! Come in on the window! Stop, or you'll drive me mad. Why is it every time there's a storm, I become so desperately ill? Why do I even shake? Right now, my head is throbbing with a killing pain. The entire left side of my face feels paralyzed. My left eye is blinded with suffering. And worst of all, I feel so alone. Oh, death to stay alone. I was less than seven years old the first time it happened. I have sad news for you, little sister Mary. We have a new baby brother, but our beloved mother is dead. This was my first experience with the mystery of death of being abandoned by someone I loved completely, by someone who loved me in return. There was a driving rainstorm, just like today. And as I listened to the pounding of the rain, a terrible sickness overcame me, and I had the feeling, even then, at seven, that in some odd way, I had been the cause of my mother's death. one years old. My older sister, Elizabeth, has invited me to spend some time with her and her husband in a home in Illinois, Springfield, Illinois. And a ball she's arranged in my honor. Thank you, Mr. Trumbull. Thank you so much. That was a nice 
seems so perfect and lovely, Terry, so lively. I feel as if I'll never be able to catch my breath ever again. Oh, you are enjoying yourself, Mary. <laughs> I am convinced that Springfield is the most interesting collection of people I've ever met in my life. Oh, and some of the most desirable and eligible young bachelors. I know. <laughs> oh, you have no idea what a relief it is to be out of our house in Lexington, even if it's only for a brief visit. That house is just bursting with noisy children, busy servants, inquisitive visitors, and relatives. And alas, very few unmarried young men. <laughs> men of promise and good reputation, that is. Not too many, I feel, Elizabeth. Not too many. <laughs> Pity. The only career that's open to me is matrimony. <laughs> and now, what is wrong with that? Oh, nothing, nothing. So here I am, a 21, a confirmed spinster. And speaking of exceptional young men, I think you're going to be asked for this waltz by that gentleman coming over to us. Which one? The, the, the tall, born-looking one, the one with the deep-set eyes. He's tall, isn't he? Who is he? Oh, he's an up-and-coming young country lawyer. A little rough around the edges, maybe, but the... Oh, here he comes. Uh, Miss Todd, uh... I'd be pleased, ma'am, if you'd honor me with this waltz. I'd be delighted. Excuse us, Elizabeth. I, I've been wanting to dance with you all evening, Miss Todd. In the worst possible way. Well, thank you. Now, let's see now. One, two, three. One, two, three. You enjoying Springfield, Miss Todd? Oh, yes, indeed. I understand you practice law. Oh, I was licensed just three years ago. I had a choice of learning to be a blacksmith or a lawyer. I, I chose the law. <laughs> the risks and challenges are not as great as blacksmithing. <laughs> <laughs> and before that, oh. <laughs> I beg your pardon, Miss Todd. I'm afraid I stepped right on your foot. Forgive me. No, no, nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> uh, before that, mm. not much, I'm afraid. I spent some time earning a modest livelihood splitting rails, clearing land, farming. Operating a general store, then the Black Hawk War. Term in the Illinois State Legislature, and that about sums up the story of my life. <laughs> not very colorful, not very eventful. <laughs> there I go again. I'm so sorry. I'm not a very good dancer, I'm afraid. Oh, you're doing quite well. <laughs> well. So I must say that in every respect, your background, the way you look, the way you speak, your manners, and as far as I can judge your mentality, you're quite unique. You are totally unlike any man I've ever met before in my entire life. I'm very sorry, mister. Sorry? Don't be absurd. I love it. You intrigue me thoroughly. As you do me. I escort you back to your seat, Miss Todd. Thank you. I appreciate your tolerating my conversation. And above all, what I call my dancing. Well, you did say you wanted to dance with me in the worst possible way. And I can only add that that's what I certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have made a rather profound impression on me, sir. And on your dancing slippers, too, I fear. My feet are fine. It's my neck. It's a bit... Yes. Your neck? 
from looking up at you as the dance. Oh. I'm all five feet two inches, whereas you, sir, are... Six four. Well, you see what I mean? Oh, that's odd. I don't even know your name. It's Lincoln, ma'am. Abraham Lincoln. from the instant I set eyes on him that Mr. Lincoln is the man I am destined to marry. After a courtship with many ups and downs in 1842 in the spacious home of my sister Elizabeth, Abraham Lincoln and I repeat our marriage vows and become man and wife. There is no wedding trip for the Lincoln. Not being able to afford a home of our own, we decided to go to the Globe Tavern, Rather noisy, crowded, but thin, expensive hotel boarding house near the edge of town. Oh, no, no, no. Not a thunderstorm. Not tonight. Oh, please, God, not tonight. Gosh, no, there's nothing to be frightened of. It does, it does, uh, bad things to me. You know how my head splits with pain, horrible pain. The, the rain, the, the lightning and thunder, they always do that to me. What can I do to help? I'll do anything you'd like me to. Oh, I know, I know. You are a dear man. Your heart is as big as your arms are long and comforting. No, I'll be all right. I'll be all right, Mr. Lincoln. Just keep on dropping. Somehow I knew in my bones that despite everything, our marriage had in some weird way started badly. With the storm that was about to break, there came the usual sinister omen. An eerie presentiment of impending death and disaster. It's the following year, 1843. Still the Globe Tavern. As I lay in bed. Come in, please. Mother, how do you feel? A little weak, Mr. Lincoln. You look so very beautiful. Oh, thank you. Is everything... Is everything all right? Everything is just fine and dandy. We have a healthy little son (laughs) with a most powerful set of lungs. And how blessed I am at a time like this to be here beside you and not away on the legal circuit. What shall our son's name be, Mr. Lincoln? The choice, my dear, is yours. Then... If you don't mind, may we name our firstborn after my father, Robert Todd? Robert Todd Lincoln. A good name, Mother. I think so. Father. A few months later, we now have a house of our own. A modest one, but ours. And as I lie here suckling my firstborn, Robert Todd Lincoln... I am sick with the thought that I may be bequeathing my unspoken terror, my silent anxieties to this innocent firstborn son of mine. Why should God choose me to be the vessel of so many fears? Why? In the spring of 1846, a second son is born to us. Edward Baker Lincoln, dear darling little Eddie. Then, in the fall, Mr. Lincoln is elected to Congress. 
I begin to bask in the reflected light of my husband's rising star. But do what I may, I cannot avoid the shadow of the thin-edged sword that with each storm dangles more perilously above my head. On a February morning in 1850, it finally falls. How peacefully he sleeps, our little Eddie. I pray he will recover. The doctor is concerned, you know. Doctors don't know everything. Please hand me that cold compress, Mr. Lincoln, for his forehead. Here. This will help bring down your fever, Eddie. It'll... No. 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 What is it, Mary? He's not breathing. What? Our little boy is gone. He's dead. The hysteria has killed him. My baby was only four years old. And he's dead. There's something about me that breeds death. My mother was the first to go. Now it's Eddie. Dear wife, oh, you must put these strange ideas out of your head. It was the will of God that little Eddie should leave us. You had nothing to do with it. I did. I did. Well, how? I don't know. If anything should happen to you, Mr. Lincoln, or to our son, Robert... I think I go out of my mind. I really mean out of my mind with grief. Now, nothing will happen to Robert, dear wife. And certainly nothing will happen to me. That I can promise you. Her persistent ill health, both mental and physical, continue to eat away at Mary Lincoln. With each new day, she becomes progressively inconsolable, more alone more frightened than ever. And in her depression, she insists that she carries the germs of calamity in her bloodstream. In the light of what we know now of history, where then can what she called this fiery furnace of affliction lead? I shall return shortly with Act Two. of Mary Todd Lincoln from 1850 to 1860 were marked by her husband's phenomenally successful march from relative obscurity to the highest office in the land. But it was a land that was coming apart at the seams, a union that was slowly disintegrating, whose future was bleak under the ominous clouds of war. And through it all, Mary Todd Lincoln was persistently haunted by the specter of a destroying angel within herself, an angel that she saw as a messenger of disaster and of death. That same year, 1850, that our darling Eddie died, the good Lord blesses us with another son, little Willie. His sunny presence does much to soften the heartache of Eddie's death. Father? Were it not for the fact that Willie often gets up during the night and toddles in here to our bedroom, stands right there at the foot of our bed to comfort me. If it were not for that, I would still be drowned in the tears I shed over Eddie. Uh, you must stop grieving over Eddie, Mother. Eddie's gone. But you have two other sons, young Robert, who one of these days will be preparing to enter college. Well, of course. And dear little Willie. Willie, yes. 
And he stands there at the foot of the bed with that sweet, adorable smile of his. And did you know that he does not always come alone? Not alone? That's right. Eddie sometimes comes in with him. Our fourth son is born, Thomas. Tad. Mr. Lincoln gives him that nickname. I call him Tad because he's as squirmy as a tiny little tadpole. And then on November 6th, 1860... Mother? Yes, Mr. Lincoln? I've just had word from the telegraph office. We won New York. Oh, my darling, at last. This means a total Republican victory. Oh, just think. Twenty years ago, I fell in love with a struggling young country lawyer. And today... Today, you're not only my first and only lady, you're also the first lady of the land. A few months later... Swept morning, Mr. Lincoln and I are on the threshold of a new life. In Springfield, Illinois, the one-time prairie lawyer stands on the back platform of the train that will take us on a slow 12-day journey to our new life in Washington. Here in Springfield, I have lived a quarter of a century. And here, I have passed from a young to an old man. Here my children have been born, and here one is buried. I now leave, not knowing when or whether ever I may return. You all right, Mother? I'll be fine. May we go inside the car? Of course. <laughs> what is it, Mother? keep thinking of some of the things that have been coming to you in the mail, and they terrify me. I'll pay no attention to them. I don't. You know they're just sent by crack. They're threats on your life. Ghastly little effigies that you stuck through with pins. Dark hints that you'll never live long enough to be inaugurated. Well, it's all so much nonsense. The train will be starting any minute. Mr. Pickerton tells me they're taking you off the train for security reasons, that you'll join us again tomorrow. I am afraid. They hate me as much as they hate you. The Southerners hate me because they think I'm a traitor to the cause of the South. And because I was born in the South, the rest of the country thinks my sympathies are with the South. One letter even called me a spy. You must pay no attention to such. Once we get to Washington, take our place in the White House. I beg your pardon, Mr. President. Uh, forgive me for breaking in like this. What can I do for you, sir? Uh, I'm Alan Pinkerton, in charge of your personal safety and Mrs. Lincoln's on this trip to Washington. I uh, know. Uh, uh, what is it, Mr. Pinkerton? What, what seems to be wrong? Well, we've just had word that a band of Confederate plug uglies is planning to blow up the bridges and all the rail connections just this side of Baltimore. And they mean to halt the train and take you and Mrs. Lincoln captive after she's rejoined. I don't believe they would dare. Believe it, Mrs. Lincoln, they would. We've checked everything out, sir. What, sir, do you suggest we do? As we approach within, say, 20 miles of Baltimore, you must both board another train. An unmarked regular passenger train at night, of course. I see. 
Both then travel on to Washington, accompanied only by me and one of my most trusted associates. We will be your only companions and bodyguards. I suppose I must agree, Mr. Pinkerton, reluctantly, but I... It must, I suppose, be done. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Listen, Father. It had already begun. Where? Oh, where will it all end? It is February, 1862. The war, now ten months old, is going badly for the North. As the Union begins to split apart, the atmosphere each day grows thicker with hatred, rumor, and divided loyalties, especially as they affect the Lincoln family. Although Willie had come down some days before with a slight fever, we do not cancel the White House reception scheduled so long in advance. While my older sister, Elizabeth, sits with him upstairs in his bedroom, I am dancing at the ball with my oldest son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Mother, I must tell you, you're the very best dancer on the floor. I, I can hardly keep up with you. Oh, such flattery, Robert. And at only 19. It's true. <laughs> uh, look at the other women. Even those younger than you, panting and heaving for breath. I am so proud of you, son. Just think, my Robert, a student at Harvard College, tall, handsome, and surprisingly mature. <laughs> well, my height comes from my father. My good looks, if indeed there are any, from you, dear mother. Well, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, Robert... And the whole family around me. I think I'm experiencing the first real happiness I have known in months. You headed soon for law school. Willie, wonderful 12 years old. Little Tad, a delicious nine. And Eddie, you know, would have been 16 had he lived. Mother. In spite of the almost unbearable burdens of the war, I do manage to see your father occasionally. The father... He's a great man, Robert. I know that, Mother. And speaking of my father, here he comes. Uh, have I your permission, sir, to dance a waltz with this attractive young lady? My pleasure, sir. Uh, may I presume to caution you to handle her with the utmost gentleness? I shall do my best. Thank you, son. There's a young girl over there who looks as though she'd very much like to dance with you. Thank you, Father. Mother, you look especially beautiful tonight. Thank you, Mr. Lincoln. And I like your gown. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Lincoln. Excuse me, Mary. Sister Elizabeth, what are you doing down here? What is it? Is anything wrong? As soon as this dance is over, please leave the floor discreetly so as not to attract too much attention. There are too many tongues ready to wag. Follow me up to Willie's bedroom. No! No, no, not that! Is Willie all right? He seems to have taken a turn for the worse. His fever seems out of control. Please, God Almighty, let nothing happen to Willie. If you must take somebody's life, take mine, but not his. Not his. within me once more shows its evil ugly head. The demon that possesses me proves its awful power once again. 
Willie, at the age of 12, is dead. Listen to me, Mother. Please, listen to me. The fairest are most frequently taken from a world of trial for some wise purpose that we can't understand. Misfortunes, they say, come in threes. First it was Eddie, now Willie. Whose father do you think will be the third? Who? July, 1863. Driving from the White House to the soldier's home, the carriage in which I'm traveling is in a grave accident. I suffer a serious head injury. The suffering is almost unbearable. I begin to feel that the third person destined to die in this trilogy of death after Eddie and Willie may very well be myself. recover. Then, in the spring of the following year, 1864, you said you wanted to see me. So I did, Mother. Well, so it concerns the coming election. I... Not uh, directly, You dear. will be re-elected, Mr. Lincoln. There's no doubt about it. And then, you must learn to take things a little easier. You look so worn out, I sometimes fear you won't get on for the next four years. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that, Mother. I feel just dandy. I know, but uh, you want to talk to me about the bill from A.T. Stewart in New York. My purchases of gowns and cashmere shawls and millinery. I suppose we're in some debt. $27,000. But you wouldn't want the wife of the President of the United States to be in rags. But, Mother, <laughs> we are a nation at war. Well, of course. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Oh, our big son's coming home from law school. Robert's spending the holidays with us. Well, what can be keeping him? I wonder his train was due in from Boston almost an hour ago. Come in. Excuse me, Mr. Lincoln. Mary, this telegram just arrived. It's for both of you. It's marked urgent. Something terrible has happened to Robert. I know it. I know it. Now you must try to be calm, that Mother. I came from the noise in my head that was there when Eddie died by thunder. And then when Willie died. As if some devil were pulling wires out of my eyes. As if bolts of lightning were shooting through my brain. Tell me. What has happened to Robert? What has happened to him? In the last act of Macbeth, Macbeth, realizing that his wife has gone mad, asks her physician, Canst thou not minister... To a mind diseased, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous matter which weighs upon the heart. The doctor answers, therein the patient must minister to himself. The events of the next few years were to test to the fullest Mary Todd Lincoln's ability to minister to herself. With what success? I'll return shortly. It was Daniel Webster who said, There is nothing so powerful as truth, and often nothing so strange. Another way of saying that truth is stranger than fiction. The sorrowful life of Mary Todd Lincoln would often seem to strain the limits of credulity. But, her story is there in the records, sometimes in her own letters. A tragic, 
heartbreaking chapter in America's past. I had that same ache in my head that there was when Eddie died and then when Willie died. Tell me what happened to Robert. What happened to him? Give me that telegram. What is it, Mother? It says, near accident in Philadelphia Railway Station. Nothing to worry about. I don't believe that. Then it says, arrival, Washington, slightly delayed. Love, Robert. There, you see? I have had the most uncanny feeling all day long. Something told me. I knew something terrible had happened to Robert. But nothing has happened. Nothing to worry about, he says. Besides, he's 22 years old. He can take care of himself. I can't wait till he gets here. What happened in Philadelphia? I can hardly believe that it did happen. Well, there I was. Standing at the edge of the railroad platform, where you change for the Washington train. Oh. Please listen to me, Mother. Oh, well, there was a huge crowd. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, a passenger hurried past me. I lost my footing, fell into the very wide gap between the edge of the platform and the wheels of the train. And you said the train had just started to take off? Exactly. Well, for a moment, I was stunned. Then a man reached over grabbed me by the coat collar and hauled me back up to safety. Oh, my poor boy, my poor boy, you could have been crushed to death. The man actually did save my life. As I started to thank him, to my astonishment, I saw that I had been snatched from a certain death by no less than the great American actor, Edwin Booth. Really? I've always been an admirer of his. We must do something to show our appreciation. Oh, I already have done that, Father. I've taken the liberty of inviting him to the White House to, to meet you and Mother. Sometime in the near future at your convenience, of course. That was most awful of you, Robert. Well, he asked if he might be accompanied by two other actors. And you said? Well, I said yes. <laughs> Considering that the actors were his father, Junius Brutus Booth, and his younger brother, John Wilkes Booth. I shall look forward to meeting all three of them. And so shall I. I think... New Year's Day, 1865. Mr. Lincoln has been re-elected president and the sweet smell of union victory is in the air. Finally, on a day in April, the slaughter ends. The war is over. But despite the rejoicing that follows, I have a feeling. I almost know that on some night of darkness, my husband will meet with a sudden and violent end. The day is Good Friday, 1865. There are fiends about us, Father. Fiends that fly about the heads of all our family. Fiends that will not allow any of us to escape. Now, you must stop thinking these thoughts. We've had more than our share of personal misery, but now that the war is over, life owes us a little joy. And after all, we do have two wonderful sons. Well, you have no idea what pride I take in, Robert. And when little Tad is near me, my heart overflows with... Happiness. I know. Mother, did you say we were going to the theater tonight? Only if you're up to it, Father. Well, it's one of the few things that have lightened the burdens of these last years. Yes, well, tonight may be a bit of a disappointment for you. How so? Oh, this is a British pot boiler. Our American cousin, they call it. And it's with Laura King. Oh, dear. But why not? Frankly, I'd prefer it if it was something like Hamlet or... 
Merchant of Venice with one of the booths. But we'll make the best of it. Won't we, Mother? The events of that fateful night are too well known to repeat. What is it that forces the ones I love most to abandon me? What have I done in my life to deserve this? Four weeks later, I arrive in Chicago to live in what is no more than a boarding house. So different from what I had known as First Lady. The only one I choose to see, and that very rarely, is my older sister, Elizabeth Edwards. Mary, you can't go on living like this. It doesn't make sense. It does for me, Elizabeth. You haven't left these rooms in over two months. These miserable rooms. You haven't even gone out for a short walk. To expose myself in these black morning clothes to the prying eyes of all my enemies? No, thank you. Enemies? Here in Chicago? I have enemies everywhere, wherever I go. They're there. And worst of all? Yes, I'm alone. I'm so desperately alone. Only because you choose to be. Had Mr. Lincoln lived, our dreams would have come to something. But now I have nothing. I am nothing. Stop talking and that way. Think for a minute that I don't know what they're saying about me. I do read the newspapers, you know. What are they saying, Mary? That I am mad. The Chicago Tribune, the Springfield Journal, I read them all. They say it is a well-known fact that I have been deranged. That is the word they use. Deranged for years. It's beginning to get dark, Mary. Shouldn't we light the gaslight? Of course not. Don't you touch those gaslights. Don't you know why, Elizabeth? No, Mary. Tell me. Because gas is the vile invention of the devil. You didn't know that, did you? That is why I keep so many candles in this room. I see. So you may light one candle, Elizabeth, the one on the table there. If you will, dear sister. My demons do not leave me. In July of 1871, my sweet, darling Tad, only three months past his 18th birthday, slumps forward in his chair and passes away before the anguished eyes of myself and his brother. Three sons and a husband, gone forever. Now only Robert remains. He is all I have. But I suspect he is up to something odd. What it is exactly, I'm not sure. But whatever it is, he means no good to me. Of that, I am certain. And that, in a nutshell, Your Honor, is the way things stand with my mother. I love her dearly, but my request, if you will grant it, is the only way out. You say, Mr. Lincoln, that this all happened after the death of your brother, Tad? I say that it got worse after Tad's death. Since then, she's becoming completely irresponsible in her actions. Some days ago, believing herself to be impoverished, 
she offered her old clothes for sale right on the streets of New York. How awful. One day she imagines that I, too, am dying. The next, that I am trying to poison her. I must remind you, Mr. Lincoln, a hearing to judge your mother's sanity with you, her only surviving son as chief witness against her, will subject you to the harshest criticism from every quarter. You're aware of that? It's the last thing in the world I want to do. That's the only way she can be restrained from hurting herself. The only method of receiving effective medical treatment. The decision is yours, Mr. Lincoln. Dr. Isham has testified that he has examined Mrs. Mary Lincoln. Widow. And that he is of the opinion she is insane... And a fit subject for hospital treatment. Further, her son, Robert Lincoln, has testified at this hearing in the fullest detail as to his mother's unnatural behavior. I, therefore, order that Mrs. Lincoln be committed to an institution, and I appoint her son, Robert Todd Lincoln, as conservator of her estate. No! No, you can't let them do this to me, Robert. You can't betray your own mother to her enemies. Oh, please, mother, they will help you. You'll see. But the Lord will punish you for this. I will punish you. Trust me, mother, I love you. I would never do anything you to hurt you. You will bring death as I have to those who are dear to you. Mother, please, I beg you of you. You will be cursed as I have been all my life. Cursed by the seeds rotting inside you. Poisonous. Seeds of death. I know, my son, for it was I who gave those seeds to you. Four months later, I am released in the custody of my sister Elizabeth. I patiently watch every move that Robert makes, waiting to see my prophecy about him become reality. In 1881, President James A. Garfield appoints him Secretary of War. On a Saturday morning in July, President Garfield is shot at the railroad station in Washington by a crazed office seeker standing not more than ten feet away from Garfield when the fatal bullet strikes. Are you, my son? With profound sorrow, the Secretary of War announces to the Army that James A. Garfield, President of the United States, died today at Elberon, New Jersey. You see, you two, Robert, are now a carrier of death. Yes, you too. The following year, at the age of 64, I joined my three dead sons and my murdered husband. Now, the grave has closed at last. But the legacy of death which I bequeath to my only living son will go on and on and on. Eighteen eighty-nine. President Benjamin Harrison appoints you, my great and distinguished son, ambassador to the court of St. James in Great Britain. In the following year, your only son, Abraham Lincoln II, succumbs to blood poisoning and dies at the age of 17. You do hear me, don't you? 
death will not silence me, nor will the grave ever still my voice. Your son has joined me and his grandfather and his three dead uncles here in the presidential vault in Illinois. And as long as you live, there will always be room for more. 1901, President McKinley shot and killed by a lunatic anarchist in the city of Buffalo, New York. And where are you this time, Robert? Almost as close to him as you had been to Garfield. Three presidents have fallen under the bullets of an assassin. Your own father, Garfield McKinley. And all of them, my son, have been closely associated with you. Nineteen twenty-six. Robert Todd Lincoln, dead of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of eighty-three. You are one of us now. The newspapers write glowingly of you, call you your father's son. But we know better, don't we? No one knows better than we that you were the son of your mother. The final interment of Robert Todd Lincoln took place in March 1928 in the Arlington National Cemetery near the nation's capital. Associated so tragically and so eerily with the deaths of three martyred presidents of the United States, Robert Todd Lincoln now lies buried close to the grave of a fourth, that of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I shall return shortly. letters of Mrs. Lincoln which have been preserved. They are the agonizing evidence of a woman who came to the White House at a tragic hour of her nation's history and was destroyed by the experience. Was she, as she fancied herself, a carrier of death? And if she was, did her son inherit this legacy? Those are questions you will have to answer for yourself. Our cast included Marion Seldes, John Beale, Carol Titel, and Lloyd Batista. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. And now, a preview of our next tale. I understand he died some years ago. I could find out more if you're interested. No, 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 thank you. I was just uh, mildly curious. The next night was my last in Trieste. I had some reports to complete, and I was ready for bed before midnight. I had an early plane. I closed my eyes. I had just fallen asleep when... Where, where, where was I? Uh, uh, certainly not in a hotel room. It, it appeared to be a kind of cave. Get down. Get down, Gabby. What? Get down behind that rock. Hey, you're that that man, Volk. Get down behind that rock or I'll shoot you here and now. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time...
pleasant dreams.